Well, good morning. And Merry Christmas. We are so grateful that you and your family chose to worship with us on this special morning where we celebrate the birth of our Savior and the, the glorious reality of the incarnation. If you haven't been with us this Advent season, the first three Sundays we've been in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. But this morning for this Christmas Eve service, we're going to be opening to Matthew chapter 2. And whether this feels like a really familiar story to you or not, I think God has much to say to us through it if we will have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. So before we dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord to guide our time together. Father, would you steady our hearts? We pause before you asking that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning, Lord. We came to hear from you. So would you speak because your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. I thought about singing it, but I just didn't have the guts. I just didn't have the guts. And my wife would have walked out. So let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. This is a song we all know well, which we're going to sing shortly after the sermon, and this is really why we've gathered together this morning. We've gathered to rejoice that the Lord has come, that the Son of God became a man, became a child for us. But I wonder if we really understand what we are saying when we sing those words. I wonder if we really mean what we are singing. Think about it for just a moment. We are saying that the king of the world, the king of the universe has come and that we are receiving him as king. And why is the very next line, let every heart prepare him room? I think it's because there are things in our hearts that would keep us from receiving him as king. We have many kingdoms, M-I-N-I, many kingdoms to ourselves, to our families, to our jobs, to our desires that have taken up room in our heart. So for us to really receive Jesus as king, those kingdoms have to go. They have to fall brick by brick. And for many of us, that means stepping off the thrones of our hearts ourselves. That's really the situation we find in Matthew 2. Jesus is already being recognized as king, even as a child. And we see the different responses to his kingship in these verses. Will the people in this story prepare him room in their hearts? Or will they build up their defenses and protect their personal kingdoms at all costs? That's the question the wise men 
and Herod face in our story, but it's really the question we all face this Christmas. Will we worship this newborn king or will we war against him? As we consider this question, let's first notice that the wise men were looking for a promised king. A promised king. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now to really appreciate what's going on here, we need to understand more of who these wise men were. But before we do that, let me just say this, okay? I love Christmas, okay? I do. I, no, I love Christmas. I love all the bells and whistles. I'm for it. I'm for as many houses as possible to have a Clark Griswold amount of lights on them as possible. I'm for cheesy Christmas movies. I am, just ask my wife. We watch all the new Hallmarks that come out every year. I'm for them. And I am for nativity scenes, okay? I'm for them. We have a wood old nativity scene from my wife's grandma up in our house as we speak. And I don't believe when we get to heaven that one of the questions we're going to be asked is, was your nativity scene completely accurate to the biblical story or not? I don't think that question's coming. But, but, despite all those caveats, there are many things we believe about this story because they've been passed down to us from tradition. So what do we actually know about these guys from Scripture? Because this text is the only text in the Bible that tells us about them. This is the only time when they're mentioned, this specific group of wise men. Well, we know they weren't there the night Jesus was born. Verse 1 tells us that these events happened after the birth of Jesus. And we know because of the timing of when they saw the star that the wise men are going to tell Herod a little bit later that this could have been much later, even one to two years after the birth of Jesus. And the Greek word translated as wise men here in the Christian Standard Bible is the word Magi or Magi. I'm from the south, so I'm going to say Magi so it's easier. You say how you want to. Magi or its plural form used here, which is Magi. And Frederick Bruner tells us the term Magi in New Testament times loosely covered a wide variety of men interested in dreams, astrology, magic, books thought to contain mysterious references to the future, and the like. Some Magi honestly inquired after the truth, while many were rogues and charlatans. So listen, these men were not followers of Yahweh. They would have been considered pagan idol worshipers by Israelites in general. And actually every other time the word magi is used in the New Testament, it's used in the negative sense. Keep that in mind as we read. And even though as Christians have often sung a song that refers to them as kings... That's not what we find in this story. This idea most likely came from tradition because of messianic passages like Psalm 72:11, which says, Let all kings bow in homage to him, and all nations serve him. But even though they weren't kings, it doesn't mean they weren't important people. These wise men were most likely considered educated scholars where they came from. 
They would have served in king's courts, advising them based on their study of the stars in other fields. And their wealth can be seen by the extravagant gifts that they bring to Jesus. Also, Matthew tells us they came from the east, most likely the Persia, Babylonia area, or modern-day Iraq. So these are Gentiles. Why on earth did they come to pay homage and worship a Jewish king? Some scholars believe that the prophecy of the coming of a powerful Jewish king was well known to many in the ancient world in the first century. We also know that there were still Jewish people that lived in the area where these wise men were from. So one way or the other, these Magi knew of a prophecy of a coming powerful and last Jewish king. And they searched for a sign of it. They tell us in verse 2, For we saw a star at its rising and have come to worship him. As you can imagine, there's great debate. There's been great debate in church history about the nature of this star. Was it a comet? Was it a conjunction of planets aligned at a certain time? Either way, let's not miss the reality of what's happening here. God supernaturally used his creation to bring Gentile, pagan, idol-worshiping astrologers on a more than a thousand-mile journey, which would have been hard and difficult, to search for a promised Jewish king. Isn't that incredible? And if you struggle with the star's role in the story, let me just remind you that a chapter ago we had a virgin birth. So this is really par for the course. Listen, there are great reasons to believe our faith. But you cannot reason yourself into Christianity. It was a supernatural faith from the beginning and it is supernatural all the way through. So these wise men or magi came looking for a promised king. But the star only got them so far. It only gets them to Jerusalem, to King Herod's court. This brings us to the point in the story where we meet a paranoid king. A paranoid king. These wise men have made it to Jerusalem. Most likely they go to Herod's court first because that makes the most sense, right? That's an appropriate place for a king to be born. And they're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at his rising and have come to worship him. Now notice how, notice how Herod reacts in the question in, ver- in, in verses 3 and 4. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Herod hears the news that a new king of the Jews has been born, and he's deeply disturbed and troubled. Why? Because there can only be one king on the throne of a kingdom. And if there's a new king, that means that Herod's kingdom has to come to an end. But Herod loves his kingdom. And Herod loves his power. He was put in place by the Romans. And and he was known as Herod the Great. He was a great builder. Builder of palaces and fortresses and other building projects. And he was known to be ruthless with his enemies. Or anyone who could be a threat to his throne. 
It is well documented that his paranoia only grew and grew and got worse as he got older. So much so that he took out three of his own sons and his favorite wife because he saw them as a threat to his rule and reign. This is how Herod treats his own family when he sees them as a threat to his kingdom. And now these wise men are saying, hey, there's a new king of the Jews that's been born. Earlier we asked the question, will the people in this story prepare him room in their hearts or will they build up their defenses and protect their personal kingdoms at all costs? And we see that Herod is the latter. He immediately goes into defense mode. This new king is a threat and Herod deals with threats only one way, but he does so stealthily. You see, he knew exactly what the men's question meant, what it was claiming. He wasn't confused. He knew they were claiming that the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of Israel, had been born. So he brings in the chief priests and the scribes. These are the men who would have studied the law and the prophets. He says, where is the Messiah to be born? They don't hesitate. Without even a second thought, they say, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Because Micah 5.2, this prophecy, which is recorded in verse 6, was well known. And you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means last among the rulers because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so Herod summons the wise men. He asks them when the, first, the star first appears and then he sends them on to Bethlehem. He says, hey, when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. But we know that Herod had no intention of worshiping Jesus. We know this because later in the chapter, after the wise men don't report back to him, verse 16 records that Herod orders all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under to be killed in keeping with the time he learned from the wise men. Herod planned to deal with Jesus the way he dealt with every threat to his rule. He planned to take him out. Before we move on to seeing the actual wise man's visit to Jesus, I think we need to reflect on Herod for just a moment. Because we could see Herod's actions. We could see Herod's actions and think that's despicable. That's, that's evil, awful, terrible. I can't relate to him at all. I'm more like the wise man. I'm more like a seeker. I'm like the magi, not some paranoid king like Herod. But if we do that, if we do that, I think we'll miss out on some of what Jesus wants to show us this morning. If we make Herod other, if we make him like the bad people out there and not like us and the people in here, then we will miss part of what Matthew is trying to teach. Because Herod is me. Me in and of my flesh. Herod is all of us in our sin. Bruner puts it this way. Herod is not dead. Herod lives on in us, the people of God. The exaggerated ambitions, pretensions, self-centeredness, greed for position, grudge against God, guile, and finally human cruelty and insensitivity. The fruit of our war with God must be contended with even by Christians until the last judgment. There are two kings at war in the world and in all of us, Herod and Christ. We all know who will win. But meanwhile, the battle rages. Herod is here in Scripture partly as a warning to the Christian reader of who he or she in no little measure still is. You see, 
in and of ourselves, in our sinful, natural state, we will always war against the kingship of Jesus. Because like Herod, Jesus being king means that our kingdoms have to end. And we think, well, maybe, maybe I can be king and, and still keep, or Jesus can be king and, and I can still keep kind of this area under my control. Or maybe I can compartmentalize this part of my life and, and live the rest of my life out here. Or maybe Jesus can be king of my Sunday mornings and my Wednesday nights and my personal devotions. But that's not possible. Because as Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that statement either feels like a warm blanket to you or like a thousand knives. It's all his. All of it. There's not an area of our lives or a place or a person or a thing that doesn't fall under his reign. And when we hear that, Herod doesn't seem so crazy. You mean you really want everything? All of it? Yes, all of it. And even those who are already Christians still have to fight against the spirit of Herod rising up against us. Because we face the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. The same lie from Satan. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That is a lie that holds up Herod in us. That wars against the kingdom of Christ to protect our personal sovereignty at all costs. So the wise men met a paranoid king in Jerusalem. Now finally they meet a praised king in the last part of our story. A praised king. Verse 8 tells us that Herod sent them to Bethlehem. Notice this, the star only gets the wise men part of the way to Jesus. Do you see that? The star only got them to Jerusalem. It was scripture that got them to Bethlehem. God can and does use his creation to glorify himself and bring people nearer to himself. But we need the written word of God to get to the living word of God. That's how this works. So when they hear that the prophet Micah foretold that the king would be born in Bethlehem, they set off on the short journey. And look at verses 9 and 10. Don't miss this. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Listen, if, Sher if Herod, excuse me, if Herod shows us how we respond to the kingship of Jesus in our natural sinful state by warring against him. Then the wise men show us how someone responds to God when he begins to do a work in our hearts through his supernatural grace. And what do we see? The first thing that these wise men experience is overwhelming joy. Overwhelming joy. Can I tell you that Christians are supposed to be joyful people? That doesn't mean we don't have hard days or seasons. That doesn't mean that we have to put on fake smiles when we face the trials and sufferings of this world. But it does mean that one of the clear marks of people who have found Jesus like the wise men is supposed to be joy. Joy. And don't miss this. The role of the star in the story 
is the role that the church and all Christians are supposed to play. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where Jesus was. That's our role. That's our role to lead people to Jesus, not to lead them to a political party, not to lead them to some version of the American dream, not to lead them to ourselves or even the right kind of theology. No, our role is to lead them to Jesus, to the king, to our good shepherd, to the pearl of great price, to our savior. Our church and our lives should be thoroughly and completely Christ-centered because he's the only thing in all the universe that leads to overwhelming joy. The star leads them to the place where the child was. In verse 11, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. Can you be in the scene for a minute? Well, sometimes we read the Bible like it's, it's just out there. Can we be in the scene for just a minute? Entering the story, they saw the child with Mary's mother. Falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Isn't that incredible? While so many other amazing things happened at the birth of Jesus and in the days and months shortly after, Matthew, a Jewish man writing to primarily a Jewish audience, tells us the first people who explicitly worship Jesus are foreign Gentile pagan astrologers who most likely worshiped other gods. That should astound us. Matthew, who quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel, is trying to tell us who Jesus' kingdom is for. He's trying to tell us who's invited to the party. It's people like the wise men, those who are least expected, the kind of people we would never invite if we were making the list. Let's be clear, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And the vast majority of the early church were Jewish. But Matthew, through Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1, and through these strange magi who travel a thousand miles to worship a Jewish king in chapter 2, is showing that this newborn king came for the whole world to redeem a people from every nation and tribe and language and people. And his multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational kingdom includes people like the wise men who really shouldn't be there, except for the fact that God loves saving people that shouldn't be there. So the wise men worship this lowly Jewish child king and lay their treasure at his feet. Because when God's supernatural grace brings us face to face with the real Jesus, this is what people do. We fall on our knees, we worship him, and we lay our treasures at his feet. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe you need to do that for the first time. Or maybe because even as Christians, we still have to resist the spirit of Herod this side of heaven. You need to acknowledge that in some sense, you've taken back the throne of your life. And you've begun to rebuild your personal kingdom. Will you fall on your knees before the king this morning? Will you lay down the treasures that you've been storing up? They're already his. And notice verse 12, after being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the wise men returned to their own, own country by another route. They returned to their own country by another route. When you meet the real Jesus, you don't go back to Herod. You can't because now you've experienced real and abiding joy. Power 
personal power and temporary power won't suffice anymore. So you take a different route. It's the route that Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. It's a route that doesn't always get us where we want in life. But it's a route that leads to an everlasting, unshakable kingdom that's brimming with joy. So as we said at the beginning, there are only two possible responses to the kingship of Jesus. War or worship. You will either war against his kingdom to protect your personal kingdom at all costs. Or you will relinquish your throne and fall down before him. Because as John Stott tells us, no one who ever met Jesus Christ ever responded moderately to him. The only three things you see people doing when they meet the real Jesus are to run away from him in terror, assault him with fury, or prostrate themselves in utter surrender. What will it be for you this Christmas? Will you prepare him room in your hearts? Will we receive him as king? Because he's worth it. And life with him is better than you can imagine. And as Mr. Beaver and the lion, the witch and the wardrobe says, he's the king, I tell you. Let's pray.